stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Hello, everyone. You're listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian radio program of apologetics where we help Christians to become thinkers and thinkers to become Christians. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis, and joining me momentarily will be Keith Kendricks, uh, who had to do a couple of pacemaker checks on patients in the hospital, but he will be joining us uh, shortly. I would like to take this time to wish everyone a very, very merry and joyous Christmas season. And I pray that everyone uh, listening will have a blessed and healthy New Year. Uh, today we're going to have uh, a couple of things that we're going to talk about. Uh, but what I'd like to do is talk about uh, briefly the wise men. You know, it's interesting because our church was going to be doing a Christmas cantata and dramatization of uh, the nativity and so forth. And I was actually going to be one of the wise men, or as I say, one of the wise guys because uh, people can argue in this modern day and age that there's no such thing as a wise man, especially if you're a uh, liberated uh, thinker. But anyway, um, what I wanted to do is read something out of Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and then elaborate on that just a little bit. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east, to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen for we have seen his star in the east and are coming to worship him. Now that's uh, very interesting um, uh, in that uh, wise men from somewhere in the east came west to find this Christ child. Now it's interesting because we don't know really where they came from, if they came from Uh, modern-day Iran or even further uh, eastward towards India or even China. But uh, some scholars seem to believe that uh, these wise men may have actually come from uh, modern-day Iran uh, because there is a very interesting thought in that during um, uh, the time that... um, Well, here's Keith Kendricks. Hello, Keith. Welcome to the show. Glad you got here. But anyway, um, there was a time when Daniel was uh, in charge of uh, many of the uh, thinkers and so forth, because at that time, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had uh, given his magicians and sorcerers and Chaldeans uh, the task of interpreting a dream. Uh, But he didn't tell them what the dream was. They had to come up with it themselves. And Daniel was the only one that was able to adequately come up with the dream because he went to prayer and um, was able to tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. And it was the statue with the head of gold, which was Nebuchadnezzar. And then uh, there were going to be three other kingdoms that would follow. Uh, ultimately, the, uh, the Midian and Grecian uh, kingdoms, and then the Roman kingdom, and then the kingdom of God. Okay, and uh, it's very interesting that uh, Daniel was able to prophesy this with his uh, 492-year prophecy. And the wise men are thought to have come from modern-day the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar or uh, Babylon. 
And uh, the teaching of the day, uh, 400 years before Christ, 500 years before Christ, was coming through uh, Daniel, because his teaching replaced what was being taught uh, uh, during that ancient time frame. So the wise men already knew the prophecy that a Christ child would be born, and exactly where he would be born, and they followed the star because they saw and in the heavens, but they also were uh, men who studied the stars, and they knew the time frame that the Christ child would be born, and they went to seek him. So I found that very, very fascinating that uh, Daniel's prophecy uh, was remembered even to that time frame, 492 or so years later. And uh, the cool. wise men uh, came and found the Christ child. So very cool. that was that. Very I thought cool. that was a very interesting tie into the Christmas story, since I was going to be a wise man tonight, but uh, got preempted by the snow. Well, let's uh, continue that thought there, because there's some uh, evidence uh, out there about one of the issues that happened when the wise men... Do you remember what happened when they went to Herod, and they said, hey, where's this coming king? And he says... What are you talking about? And, well, we saw a star in the east. We're, we're tracking this guy down. And, and he says, well, you tell me where he is, and I want to come worship him too. Mm. So the story goes that uh, the wise men were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And, and when Herod found out that they didn't come back and they had already left, he ordered that every child under the age of two be executed mm. in Bethlehem and yes. the surrounding area. Now, historians have pretty much said this did not happen, okay? And a lot of the reasoning is because uh, early on, uh, some of the uh, church traditions, uh, and actually not early church traditions, but uh, Middle Ages church traditions, said that there were probably 3,000 children that were slaughtered. Well, historians really doubt that that could have happened, and nobody wrote about it. For one thing, Josephus, who's very thorough in writing about the time uh, under question, doesn't mention it. So uh, historians of, you know, you'll hear, hear people say, and I had a discussion with a physician a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about uh, Christmas, and he had just recently been to Israel, and uh, so he mentioned this, that while he was there, they mentioned that this had never occurred. Well, it turns out that some archaeological investigation shows that, in reality, the size that Bethlehem was at the time, in the town of Bethlehem, you're talking about children under two years old, only about five or six. And so then if you add from the surrounding areas... Um, which the scripture says he included the surrounding areas, you may be talking about less than 100 children. And so in those days, um, when children were merciless, for, for one thing, children died frequently just on their own. Uh, but secondly, if you uh, didn't want a child, now, of course, in Judea, in Judea it was probably different, but at least amongst the Greeks and uh, Romans, it certainly was true that uh, for instance, a father had uh, 24 hours to decide if he wanted to accept the child that had been born. And, but when nobody's really paying attention, uh, children were just abandoned in, uh, in forests and uh, left to die. That was uh, what they did. Um, it was their form of uh, 
euthanasia and abortion. Yeah, that was actually the uh, story of Romulus and Remus, was it not? Yes. And uh, they were found by the wolves, raised by the wolves, and uh, founded uh, Rome, but of course that's uh, mythology. Right. So um, so it turns out then uh, some archaeologists have done some studies of uh, Herod the Great, and, and it turns out that this was exactly his psychology, that he was so paranoid he used to hear rumors about someone who was looking to take over uh, his kingdom, and he would have them executed. Uh, he uh, murdered one of his wives. He murdered uh, some of his own children uh, because he thought that they were a threat to his throne. Mm. Uh, he was so bloodthirsty and so brutal that when he was approaching, when he knew he was going to die soon, uh, he thought that no one was going to mourn for him. So he decided to gather 50 of the Jewish rulers from the area, and he had them all arrested and brought into an arena with orders. They were all kept under guard with orders that as soon as he died, they were to all be executed. The reasoning was that he wanted people to be upset and mourn the day he died. Mm. And uh, so fortunately, uh, after he died, um, the order was countermanded. And they weren't they weren't killed, but it 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 fits exactly. So so we have that evidence uh, that it would fit the situation. Folks, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. Uh, this is the uh, Christian Evidences show uh, that helps uh, Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. Uh, you can call us at three nine eight ten twenty, and uh, you're listening to me. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And we're talking about what's actually in ch- uh, Chapter 2 of Matthew. And if I can, Keith, just as a footnote, just tie in the uh, Herod um, thing. It's Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. And then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and on all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time, which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then it was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet. So that's what the Word of God says. So, And the mere fact that Josephus doesn't mention it, there are other things that he doesn't mention um, that are important, and one of them is an interesting tidbit that we— this is one of those undesigned coincidences of the Bible that— we're not sure, just if you look at just what the Bible says, we're not sure why it's there. And that is, do you remember when Christ was on trial, there was this apparent um, uh, ill feeling between Pilate and Herod. You know, they're passing Jesus back and right. forth and say, hey, it's not my problem, you take care of it. No, I don't want to take care of it, it's your problem, and sends him back. Well, it turns out that there was actually a historical reason for that, um, and that's mentioned by uh uh, Philo of Alexandria, that there was a uh, pilot had brought into Jerusalem some uh, standards, some uh, basically flags that had the emperor's emblem, his face on them. And since the emperor was worshipped as God, this of course was incredibly offensive to the Jews. And so Herod was really mad that uh, Pilate had uh, upset the Jews uh, this way. And so there was a lot of animosity between them. Yet this animosity, even though it's apparent in the scriptures, it's not explained. But this goes to the point that 
it was written by people who were present who were eyewitnesses because if they weren't eyewitnesses, they would have tried to explain things because they themselves would wonder why it's in the story. If I'm saying it this way, I have to explain why I'm, I'm saying it this way. So uh, an interesting point. And uh, the last bit of news, I guess, this is not news, but it's a rehash of the news. You know, Jesus really wasn't born December 25th. Did you know that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, the church adopted that as, as uh, a way to kind of extinguish an old festival. Of light. Yep. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, there was... is actually a mention of the possibility of when Jesus was born. This is from Clement of Alexandria. He's writing around the year 200 AD. So this is a long time after. So uh, it's tough to put a lot of stock in it, but at least this is the earliest mention that we have, the earliest uh, recording by a historian an early church father of when he was born, and uh, he records he was born on May 14th, 6 BC. And that does fit all of the um, uh, uh, kind of um, issues that you'd find uh, as historically or, or archaeologically. Yeah, so and there, that's there were, a possibility. Yeah, there were a lot of problems with dating because the calendar for the Jews was different than the Roman calendar, which was subsequently adopted and, and so forth. So it makes it very difficult to uh, to calculate that day, but the uh, Festival of Light, uh, which was a pagan ritual, uh, was sort of transitioned out, and the birth of Christ was substituted so that as uh, Rome adopted Christianity and so forth, they were able to uh, transition the uh, uh, the birth of Christ on that day, which is almost the time of the winter solstice, which of course is the shortest day, longest night of the year, and that's why the Festival of Light uh, was actually being celebrated. And we, we talked about, uh, last week, we talked about that Zeitgeist movie, and mm. they, they play off of the fact that, you know, Jesus was born on December 25th. I guess they never really read the Bible. It doesn't say he was born on December mm. 25th. It wouldn't take much research to see that, uh, you know, that's not true, that it was deliberately chosen as a day. But uh, they didn't even do that much research for the Zeitgeist uh, internet movie. Mm. Now, talking about this idea of the... Uh, uh, unintended coincidences. Um, Let's go into that. We went into that a little bit uh, last week, and I'd like to uh, go into it some more. I've got some more examples of that. And what this is, it's kind of the opposite of a contradiction or an error. You know, Mike, um, atheists and critics of the Bible, they love to just say, oh, well, the Bible is full of errors. The Bible is full of contradictions. Uh, until you ask them to point until one out. Until you try to contradict them and say, find me one, <laughs> show right. me one so we can talk about it. That's right. Now, and, and usually they say, well, I've never read the Bible. Right. <laughs> exactly right. Now, uh, and sometimes you do find things which uh, appear to be um, opposed to each other. So we call this a paradox. You know, it's a paradox if it appears to be a true contradiction. Um, but a true contradiction is, you know, the absolute negation of another thing, not just the appearance of it. Like if I say, Mike, uh, you are a physician, and then um, seven chapters later I say, you are a father, well, that's not a contradiction. Just because one time I called you a father, and the next time I called you a physician, and those aren't the same, see, look, that's a contradiction, no. Uh, it's an apparent paradox that is easily figured out. Oh, it happens to be both 
a physician, and a father. Well, the same kind of thing, the same kind of issues come up when you have an item, an article, that is written by someone who knows what they're talking about. One thing is that when people write things like eyewitness accounts, when they write out, they know a lot of things, and they think their audience also knows all those things. So they don't include a bunch of things. They will summarize. Now, the problem is that a hundred years later or a thousand years later, people don't know all the details that the author knew. So you get these weird things that happen. You get kind of, you know, that are left out. So um, there's one that happens in 2 Timothy 3.15. So, Mike, if you want to read that for people. Sure. This is 2 Timothy 3.15 out of the NIV version. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. Now he's talking about Timothy. This is a letter from Paul to Timothy. And he says that from birth you knew the Scriptures. Well, what Scriptures is he talking about? He's not talking about the New Testament. The Old Testament, of course. The Old Testament. But Timothy's a Greek. How, does it, how is it possible that a Greek knew the, new, the Old Testament from birth? How is that possible? You see, it's left out because he thinks that, because he knows. He knows exactly why. Was his, now, grandma, take, was his grandmother Jewish? Well, take a look at <laughs> Acts 16. You might be remembering this verse by a different author. This is from, this is from Luke. Okay, this is Acts 16, verse 1. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. There you go. There, there so, so you get this, and, and you see, it's not that Luke is trying to clean up Paul's work. You know, It's just that both men are writing what they know about, and it seems perfectly clear to them because they're eyewitnesses. They know mm-hmm. what's going on. But to us, it seems strange. How can Timothy, who's a Greek, have known the Old Testament from birth? Ah, then we find out from someone else that, ah, okay, his mother was a Jewess. Now, does it say there in Luke, does Luke say that Timothy learned the scriptures from birth? No, not at all. But we find out that his mother was a Jewish and a believer. So apparently she did teach him from birth. Okay, so that's and, an example. And one, yeah. one further comment. How do, you, how do they know something from birth? Because she was reading to him, mm-hmm. just as any good mother would read to their child, which we've all done. Exactly right. Take a look at, uh, here's another one, uh, John 6, 5. Okay, John 6, 5 says this. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Okay, now the situation is... That this is about, they're about to, um, Jesus is about to do the miracle of the loaves and fishes. Mm. He's got a big crowd and no place, no food for them. And they're out, no, uh, you know, they're out uh, outside of a town. Now he turns to Philip. Now, I've kind of wondered this myself. He was setting why, him up. Why Philip? I mean, look, most of the New Testament, they talk about uh, Peter, uh, John, you know. There's very, Philip is just not a big character. Why doesn't he turn to Peter and say, hey, Peter, how, where should we get some food? Because Peter, you know, was a big mouth guy anyways and had an opinion about everything. 
So why is he turned? This seems strange. But then if you look at Luke 9, verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Okay. So they now that is from a different writer, and this also is just before the feeding of the loaves and fishes. All right. So now we get a little bit more detail from another. The one that, that John left out was that, that they were near Bethsaida. So they're outside of a town. They're near Bethsaida. But that still doesn't explain why it was Philip. Read the, read the next verse there. In John twelve twenty one, it says this. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida there in Galilee, go. with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Okay. But now we know that Philip knew the geography, the train, all the stores, and so forth. That's right, because he lived there. He where was the bakery from, was. <laughs> exactly. knew where who had food in this town. Now, you see, do you see how they were not intentionally leaving these things out? But So it's unintentional, but it's a coincidence that tells you that the people who wrote these were eyewitnesses. They knew these things. They didn't realize that a, a reader centuries later wouldn't understand. Now, let's look at another one. This one's kind of interesting because it goes back and forth twice. Okay, let's look at uh, Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. And did I give you all 1 through 7, or I have just 3 and 4? Through 6 and 7. Yeah, 6. Okay, so let's read that section. It's, okay. And this is uh, goes back to that to Jesus on trial. Okay, Luke 23, 1 through 7, NIV. And then the whole assembly rose and led off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Christ, a king. And so Pilate asked Christ, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. And then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. All right, now stop right there. Now, is that totally weird? What? They just accused him of saying that he was a king. He goes and asks Jesus, are you a king? He says, essentially, he says, yes. And he says, and then he comes out and he says, I find nothing wrong. That, wait a minute. No way. No way does he say, I find nothing wrong. But if we go to a different eyewitness, let's go to John and look at John 18, 33 through 38. What does that say? 28 through 33? Yes, go for that. Okay, John 18, 28 through 33 says this. And then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover, so Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he, if he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. And so Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Okay, now stop there. 
Now, we get a different rendition of it, and this time, there's no mention of Jesus claiming to be a king, and yet Pilate comes in and says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, again, this is totally weird. Why would John have written this? Because John knew the full story. He didn't write down what the Pharisees had said about Jesus. Mm. So you get, you get this strange thing, you know. Here, we brought him to you. Why, we, want to, we want him killed. You know, why, why do you want him killed? Well, we wouldn't have brought him to you if, we, if he didn't deserve to be killed. Then he walks in and he says, are you the king of the Jews? You know, very bizarre. But as we just read from Luke... What really happened, well, not what really happened, but what additionally happened is that they explained to Pilate that he did claim to be a king. Right, Right. and of course, blasphemy was punishable by death. Yep. So basically, that's what they were after. And so that's this unintended coincidence. Coincidence. Yeah, now there's another one here. Keep reading that section. So basically, we're getting complementary stories. They complement one another. It proves that they were both eyewitnesses. Go ahead and read the, the last part of that now and see the second coincidence. That's, uh, that's the part. Um, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And, uh, and Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. And then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis to charge this man. But they insisted he stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was Galilean, and when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he went to, to Herod. Okay, well, we still got this strange situation now, again, where he gets told, Jesus says, yes, I'm, I'm a king, and Pilate goes outside and says, I find nothing wrong. We still have that to explain. So, And that's further on, after 33. Okay, so John 18, 33 through 38 says this. And Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against this man. See, now we get the fuller explanation. So you, isn't that interesting? You've got these two verses, but they go back and forth with this blending, and you see what re- is really happening with this unintended um, uh, sure. coincidence. So you, you get so, the complete dialogue, and they complement one another. They give right. you the bigger picture, the fuller picture. Now we understand why Pilate went out and said, I see nothing wrong because he knows that it's about a heavenly kingdom that Jesus is a king of. So we get the explanation. And there are literally, the Bible is literally full of hundreds of these unintended coincidences. And I think what we should do, Mike, is do a whole show on them someday because they're really, really fascinating. More and more evidence that the Bible really is the Word of God. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. 
And if you'd like to challenge us or call with a question, you can call us at 609-398-1020. Or you can check us out online at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence and then the number four, faith.com. And you can email us there with any questions. All right. Well, Mike, one of the things we're going to be talking about for the rest of the show is about some of the archaeological evidences that talk about the Israelites in Egypt. Mm. So both Joseph and his presence and what archaeological evidence is there that there that Joseph was uh, in Egypt and also the root of the Exodus. Now, we've known for a while that the current Mount Sinai, if you were to, you know, book a a travel agency and say you wanted to go to Mount Sinai. They would take you down to a place on the uh, Sinai Peninsula and take you to an ancient cathedral uh, that's been there and it's been built over and over. But it was first that site was first established in the fourth century. That and it's where they decided that uh, this must be Mount Sinai. Yeah. Um, but since then, we've learned that it really can't be Mount Sinai. Um, and mainly because it's too far from the biblical references. So there just simply wasn't enough time for the Israelites to travel from place to place that's described in the book of Exodus. It's too far from a place called Midian, and it's too far from another place called uh, Kadesh Barnea. So that couldn't have been it. (coughs) But since the book of Exodus, there's this, uh, up until the, fourth century, there's about a 1,200 years of silence as to where um, the actual Mount Sinai is. Um, But archaeologists have been diligently working, trying to map out the route of the Israelites from Egypt into uh, the Promised Land. And they have a pretty good feel for just by tracing everything as carefully as they can where um, they went. Now, this question came up. Uh, this um, information that I'm getting is from a presentation by the archaeologist Bryant Wood uh, that he gave down at the Evangelical Philosophical Society meeting down in New Orleans uh, before Thanksgiving. And he talked about the question of why, if the Israelites were in Egypt for a 400-year period, why don't we find more information about them? And, he's, you know, because the Egyptians did write their history. They did have a written history. They used hieroglyphics, and they used to keep track of things. Well, here's the answer. During that 400-year period, in the area where the Israelites lived, and we do know because we have archaeological evidence, the style of the homes, the fact that there were uh, the bodies of babies uh, buried in the floor, um, the fact that there were uh, uh, tools and implements left behind, just simply abandoned when the site was abandoned, right near the palace where we know that the uh, baby Moses was picked up out of the Nile, That whole area, for those 400 years, there are only two tablets in existence of anything written. Now, neither one of them has anything to do 
with the Israelites. But that's just an example of the um, paucity, the, the sparseness of the written evidence during that time period. So there's just simply nothing there. We have two tablets, and neither one of them has anything to do with um, anything that refers to the Israelites. And there is a reason for the paucity of the historicity of that time frame. Tell me. There has to be. Why? I'm sure that it has something to do with that being one of the darkest chapters in Egypt's history. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, because at the end, the uh, pharaoh gets wiped out, the army gets wiped out. Um, You have all these horrible plagues affecting everyone, including the crops. Yep. And we do have later mentions of uh, Egyptian historians writing, and it does sound, descriptions sound exactly like the plagues. Well, the Exodus happened in the 18th dynasty. Um, By tracking the route that they followed, it looks like they crossed at a place called Abu Sefa. And this is in a region where there were massive lakes called the Bala Lakes. And where they crossed the the Reed Sea, uh, which is now called Bala Lakes, or actually not anymore because uh, since the Suez Canal was put through, all those areas were drained. So all these lakes are completely drained. But there's this massive lake to the east of where they were staying, uh, where the slave uh, 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 habitat was. Do you call that a slave habitat? What do you call that? Village? Town? Mm-hmm. And it was about 15 kilometers wide and 5 to 6 meters deep. So uh, really, you know, impassable unless uh, a miracle happened. Then following from there and following very detailed references that the Bible makes and trying to be as, uh, as uh, detailed and specific as possible, uh, Dr. Wood believes that he found the real Mount Sinai. Now, one of the things that makes it likely is that traditionally, uh, Jewish tradition is that the Mount Sinai was not a very tall mountain. There was more like a big hill. Um, and that there is, in this location, there is a big, massive hill. And it's if you go around the back of it, it's got a nice, gentle ramp up to the top, and it wouldn't be difficult um, to climb. But from the site where there's a place for camping that you could fit a couple million people, um, there it's steep. And what they found is 12 stone circles in a row um, and a rock barrier between those stone circles and the mountain and some other signs of habitation like uh, mosaics that are in the shapes of animals, you know, mosaic made into animal shapes uh, in the ground. So definitely some really interesting archaeological evidences coming out about the presence of the Israelites in the Sinai and where they crossed the Reed Sea. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. Well, Mike, let's talk about um, the evidences for Joseph in Egypt. I heard some of this presented by Douglas Petrovich, who's a, another archaeologist who uh, deals in this area. And he gave a ton of information all about the different dynasties, which pharaohs were in what years, and how things have been matched up. 
one of the interesting things is that they've definitely pinned the Exodus to the year 1446 B.C., and this is based on the date of Solomon's Temple, which is solidly dated, and then they can extend backwards to uh, 1446 for the Exodus. One of the things that they've discovered is that from the Nile River, there's a branch and some canal work that was done to break through from the Nile River through a little ridge area to the west of the Nile. By breaking through this high ground, they were able to feed water into this uh, plain, this, this area with fertile uh, land that they could grow crops on. Now, this is called the Cahoon area. That canal, that branch of the Nile that's, that was dug out, still has the name today of Bar Yusuf, mm. which in Arabic means the waterway of Joseph. Now, this waterway, this canal, was done at exactly the time that Joseph would have been uh, in Egypt. And it flooded this area. They, they broke through the water, and then they put a, a bunch of irrigation canals into this area to grow crops in this area called Cahoon. This, of course, was when Joseph was in a position of power and in charge of the agricultural ministry and so forth. Exactly. Just yeah. uh, yep. Just as the Bible describes. And did I include? I think I brought the verse for that describes Joseph's activities um, in Egypt. But he was put in charge because he had predicted that there would be a period of seven years of famine. Follow, or seven years of growth followed by seven years of famine, and that in order to prepare for those seven years of famine, they would have to grow a lot of crops. Now, the pharaoh who was uh, in charge at the time of Joseph was a pharaoh by the name of Sesostris II. And it's very interesting that he decided to build his pyramid in this region of Cahoon, this region that they had developed into a fertile crop-growing region, whereas traditionally the, the uh, pyramids had been in other areas. So, um, but he created this farmland with canals and then put his pyramid there. So uh, Genesis described in Genesis 41, verses 46, the second part of 46 on through 49. And this is what the NIV says, Genesis 41, 46 through 49. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Right. Okay. Now, so the question is, if this really happened, shouldn't we find archaeological evidence for those um, items that are mentioned there? And, in fact, they do. When you look at this Cahoon area, which was a major grain-growing operation during this time, there's extensive granaries throughout all of the uh, building complexes that are in that area. And some interesting 
evidence comes up when you look at the time period during the, there's that seven years of uh, harvesting and rich crops coming in, and then seven years of famine. Do you remember, Mike, what the Bible says? That there, that people had to even sell their land in order to buy grain. The famine was so severe that they had to give up all their property. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that prior to this time, there had been, even though there was a pharaoh of Egypt, he actually had to share power. He was a titular head, and he was a powerful head, but there were many, many chieftains that they called nomarchs that had descended from the original families that were prior to the dynasties. So even though we're talking, you know, uh, a long time since the first dynasty, there before the dynasties there were these chieftains or nomarchs. Well, those people, those families still had a lot of power during the time of Sesostris II. What happens is after this period, when there's this time that the Bible says was seven years of famine, you find that the office of the nomarchs completely vanishes. Mm. And you find that by that time, no one in Egypt owns any property at all except the pharaoh and the priests. So the priests of the different gods, they were allowed to keep their land because— they were fed as an allotment since they were providing a service in the temples uh, for people to worship their God. They had food. They were fed. They didn't need to, to sell their land, but everyone else did. So we find that all the power now goes to Pharaoh, and after this point, Pharaoh is an absolute monarch. Now, that this is all clearly laid out in the history of Egypt. But now we have the explanation because the Bible provides that extra background information. We know what was really happening. Very interesting. And now you have an outside source confirming what uh, the Bible says about Joseph. Yep. Very interesting. So there's a, uh, he gave us a timeline, then some specific times that, uh, that uh, have been pinpointed for Joseph's uh, uh, activities in uh, in Egypt. Well, the, these folks are some of those uh, referenced timeline um, uh, bullet points. 1887 B.C., Sesostris II comes to the throne as the co-regent with his father, Amenemhet number two. Um, and in 1887 B.C., Joseph interprets the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer, and guess what? Joseph gets made second in charge over all of Egypt. And this, of course, is referenced in Genesis 41, verse 46. This is when the seven years of plenty begins. Now, in 1885 um, and 1884 B.C., Sesostris II began the construction of Cahun, including workers' quarters, ten officials' villas, a pyramid complex, and a temple and a mortuary complex. Um, and, of course, this, this has everything to do with the irrigation, allowing for the, uh, the plentifulness of the crops. In 1884 B.C., Amenemhet II dies and is buried at, uh, at Dahashur, just to the north of the capital of Ichtawi. Okay, now in, 17, in 1878 B.C., the seven-year period of plenty ends and the seven-year famine begins. And in 1878 B.C., Sesostris II dies, possibly suddenly, either in the seven-year of plenty or in year one of the famine. 
He is buried at Lahoon in the pyramid that was constructed during the time of plenty. In 1870s BC, Sesostris III initiates major changes in the governmental structure, including the curbing of the, the nomarch's power and the impl implementations of high offices under the vizier, three main administrative divisions, a northern department, a southern department, and a department of the head of the south, and Elephantine and Lower Nubia, which established absolute national power directly in the hands of the monarchy. Of course, nobody had land at that point in time because they were parlaying their land so that they could eat. Yeah, that's how he got all the power. And finally, in 1871 B.C., the seven-year famine ends. And in 1805 B.C., Joseph dies, apparently in the last year of the reign of Amenemhet number 4. Very cool. Isn't it amazing that we know so much through archaeology and just examining the Bible, just taking it at face value, that it really was an eyewitness account written at the time, and you go back and you find all these comparisons and all these um, uh, evidences that show that it's really true. So but you the neat, neat thing is that you have an extra-biblical source that actually confirms that what we read in the Bible is not something that's made up, but it's actually factual. It may not be all of the detail and not all of the information, right. but what is written in some er summary form is correct. And just imagine, if it had been made up, if the story of the Exodus, the story of the slavery, the story of Joseph, all that had been made up, none of this, these uh, these evidences would have been there. All of it, there's no way that it could be have matched so closely to the real events. Because remember, the critics are saying that, oh, well, this story was written about 500 B.C. You know, so you're talking 1,300 years later, they would have had no clue what kind of a story could have matched the evidence that we would be digging up today. So fabulous evidence. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. All right, you can check us out on evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence and the number for faith.com. Well, Mike, let's go on to another topic. We've got about 10 minutes uh, to go for the, today's show, and I think we can cover this very interesting argument uh, that I heard from uh, Doug Guyvett and Jim Spiegel. Um, it's an argument for the existence of God. Now, we've covered in the past, we've covered several different philosophical arguments for the existence of God, including the moral argument. And this is the idea that uh, because you can know right and wrong, um, that you have an inward knowledge, an ability to tell the difference, that this implies that there are standards of right and wrong. Now, these can only come from an, a supernatural source, not a natural source. And uh, this, then, is evidence that God exists. In a similar way, you can look at the concept of beauty, mm. Aesthetics, not just ethics, morality, but aesthetics and beauty. Our sound engineer, John Katedy, is a musician, so he has to have an aesthetic ear for beauty versus non-beauty. Now, if he did not have this capability, he wouldn't be able to make music. He wouldn't be able to make music that anyone would want to listen to. He wouldn't want to be able to make beautiful music like he does. But because he's got this ability to distinguish, and because there are real standards, there are standards of beauty 
that are actually out there, he can do this. And he can do things. It, now, let's say, well, the critical say that beauty of the eye of the beholder is purely subjective. Okay. Well, if that were true, then it wouldn't be possible for John to learn to improve his musical abilities. Right? Because it's just subjective. There's nothing objective about it. So just banging away and making a lot of noise, that has just as much value as, say, playing a violin to uh, Beethoven. You follow me, Mike? Absolutely. So, um, so that's what this argument is about. This human beings have something we call an aesthetic capacity. Now, this is a refutation of naturalism. In naturalism, there's absolutely no explanation for this, and it actually follows that there should not be this kind of thing because this is not something that is natural. It's not something that's associated with mass and weight uh, or energy. It's not associated with physical things. It is associated with something supernatural, something within us, something in our soul, in our spirit, that gives us the ability to distinguish uh, these standards, these what we could call aesthetic properties. And those properties then produce in us an emotional response. So when we look at something like the Mona Lisa, we, we see, we get a feeling of, of just um, awe and, uh, you know, a real appreciation for the beauty of this painting. Or when we see a fantastic sunset, there are properties there that we can distinguish, that we can see. Just like we have eyes that can see physical properties, we have a moral sense that can distinguish moral standards and values. We also have an aesthetic ability that allows us to see beauty when we look at something beautiful or when we hear something beautiful. And Keith, I honestly don't believe that there's another creature on earth other than man that has this capability. Right. So this comes from the higher knowledge or this this higher appreciation that we're born with. And this is something that's innate. You know, as a as a photographer and a judge of photography and a mm-hmm. a blue ribbon winner, I know what goes into a good composition. Yes. You know, whether it's the lighting now, or whether it's the foreground or the background or the subject matter, I know what it takes to make a good photograph, and I know how to judge a good photograph. Now, could you teach me? I can. Yes, see? Now, but let's say that it was totally subjective, that it's only, it really was true, beauty is on, in the eye of the beholder. Right. It's totally subjective. Then you'll have. Could you teach me then? No, because everything that you're going to shoot is going to be totally random, and chances of it being a great photograph are going to be minimal to none. And it wouldn't even mean anything for you to say it was a great photograph. Right. That would be a kind of a meaningless concept, because there wouldn't be anything such thing as greatness. But I would give you an honorable mention, of course. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. which, Which I think all the kids today are getting. You know, no matter what they join, they're getting an honorable mention or a. Yeah. Some sort of a trophy. That's true. Participation ribbon. Well, there are three ways that you can outline as to how this proves that God does exist, uh, or the the evidence stacks up for this aesthetic properties. One is that there wouldn't be any debates about the 
objects beauty and objects beauty wouldn't be possible you wouldn't be able to debate with me now it might be debatable whether the mona lisa is the most beautiful painting in the world i think it is maybe mike you don't think it is we could debate it and we could argue over why that's so and even john could say no you know it's it's horrible he could tell me why that's because there's these there are real values there are real standards of beauty secondly Experts such as literary critics or photography judges, um, those, those people couldn't be trained. If there were no standards, no values in beauty, they could not be trained. There couldn't be any such thing as a literary critic. And this all comes from an analytical mind as opposed to a, a, a mind that just operates on instinct. Well, in a sense, it almost seems like it's instinctive, just as we seem like we have something we call a conscience that we instinctively know right from wrong. You know, we feel guilty when we're about to hurt someone. We feel, we have a feeling of, it's an instinctive, essentially instinct, instinct. and that's the same thing with beauty when you, you open your eyes and you see that beautiful sunset and you look at the colors and you just instinctively have this emotional response. That's that aesthetic feeling. Um, so, and thirdly, then the final evidence is that there wouldn't be a uniform response when people show films. Let's say you make a horror film and you want the response of scaring people. That wouldn't be possible if there weren't aesthetic standards that you could apply, that you knew you could build up a feeling of suspense and horror in people or that you could make them laugh, or that you could give them a sense of beauty and make them go, oh, that's so sweet. So that's the kind of thing that, um, that those are the evidences that, that there really is this aesthetic capacity, which is non-natural, it is supernatural, it's something that God gave us and something that uh, God has as a feature of himself. So you have been listening to Evidence for Faith I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. Please join us again next week for more Evidences for Faith. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Uh, I feel like having some church up in here. Come on, chat.